This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Something that has certainly been making headlines uh, and slowly, slowly picking up more steam. And of course, we knew that this was uh, on the way. Uh, It doesn't make it any easier to handle. Hamilton Public Health has warned that fentanyl-laced crack has arrived in Hamilton. Authorities believe that it came here from Toronto and have heard it is becoming more and more widespread. To find out more about all of this, Debbie Bang is with us, manager of Womankind Addiction Services, Men Addiction Services Hamilton, Eating Disorder Program, St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, and she is with us now. Hello, Debbie. How are you today? Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We've certainly heard uh, almost uh, on a weekly, uh, with weekly daily reports of how this issue is is getting more and more dangerous. How significant is this latest development? Um, it, it, it's hard to know whether or not uh, exactly what is out there at the moment because uh, none of us have got uh, test kits on the street with us when when uh, you know we're testing the items. But more importantly. Uh, it helps us to think about how we how we give people advice about what they should be doing if they're actually using opioids, and that's um, I think that's a really good message that we could get across for people. So, what is the message here? So, the message is that uh, often the person that you have been receiving your drugs from, even for a long period of time, may or may not know exactly the potency of the drug that they're giving you or that that, that they're selling to you. So people need to make sure that they're safe, and that means that you use smaller amounts than you would normally. You use it over time versus all at once. You want to be sure that that somebody knows where you are when you're using and that ideally that you're using with someone else so that someone is there that could uh, save your life if that needed to happen. The other important piece, if, if someone is actively using opioids like fentanyl, would be to ensure that they've got a naloxone kit, that they've gone to uh, public health or they've gone to one of the addiction services and they've received the training or one of the pharmacies in Hamilton to receive the training and they have their own naloxone kit and that's with them when they're actively using. And to, to make sure that, uh, that, that, you, that you've got those safety plans set up. And for those who are thinking that they would like to stop using uh, opioids, because for some people they continue to use because it's, it's, the withdrawal is so unpleasant and so uncomfortable that it's, it's easier just to, to keep trying to get some opiates to stave off that withdrawal. If you're at a place where you want to stop, there are lots of services available to help with that. So those could be uh, methadone clinics. Those could be withdrawal management services like Men's Addiction Service or Womankind Addiction Service. And those, both of those places are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even if you just need to talk with somebody to, to think about what your options are. Is there any way for any of these people using these drugs to check to see what is in them? Is that possible? This seems like Russian roulette. And, and it feels like Russian roulette. You, you, you've named that quite well. Uh, there, there isn't a lot of ways of doing that. There, there are some, uh, you know, some, some pro, uh, products that have been made that have some ability to test for some items and not for other items. The reality is that most people are not going to stop to do that. Is that test kit that they have that could be very, very expensive? Is it even accurate? Will it test for the products that are there? And the reality is that what gets put into that product, whether it is a liquid or a pill form, there's all kinds of things in there that nobody really knows about because they're being made either somewhere else or they're being made with products as as fillers and other items. So to know exactly what you're getting is pretty near impossible. And that's why that, that real caution about using smaller amounts making sure you've got somebody with you when you're using. Try to, to use it over time versus all at once and, uh, and and see what happens to you. Be in a safe place when you're using. Wow. That's, that, that's pretty scary advice. Well, it's important. I mean, advice. it's the reality, Debbie, but it's scary advice, isn't it? Well, um, I guess you could look at it that way. I hope that people will, will uh, choose that option. Uh, because even even if you've been dealing with somebody for many years, they're getting their supply from somebody else, and what's being produced out there is not necessarily what you think it is. Uh, the quality control is not there. The as you would in you know if somebody were developing an aspirin, there's all kinds of quality controls to make sure that's exactly what's what's in there. 
says what's in there, it's on the label, all of those things. That's not the reality for street-related drugs. Do you have any idea where this stuff is coming from? Um, I probably would be very rich if I didn't know that because yeah. I, I could help uh, make a difference there. But is it uh, people banging this stuff out here? Is it being made somewhere else and shipped in? Um, it could be both of those things, Scott. Right. And, and, you know, nobody really knows exactly. I mean, there are people who know what that is, but they're yeah. not uh, necessarily going to tell us that. Why are the producers of such product lacing their drugs with something like a fentanyl, knowing that they could be wiping out their potential customer? Why would they? Why, why is anybody going near this stuff? And isn't that the million-dollar question? So, if, if this is my product, and I want people to continue to use it, yeah. But the potential outcome is they're going to be not alive in order to use it again. That really begs you to to wonder why people are doing that. The the experience that, that we've had through the years and what people have told us through the years is that um, it's a fairly fickle market. And if I'm getting a really good uh, outcome high from this particular uh, person that I bought from and somebody tells me about that, you know, am I going to change dealers? Yeah, probably. And so there's this, this constant uh, desire to make my product more appealing to a, a larger market because it, it, it's a... It's a financial transaction. Are are uh, users looking for this, trying to stay away from it? How do they feel about this? Well, I think they're the best ones to ask that question to, and I, I can't speak on their behalf. Um, what sometimes they will tell you is there, there's a variety of different uh, intentions when you're using substances. One is to make the awful in my life go away, mm-hmm. and this is an escape from that. And if I've got some pretty awful stuff in my life, I may not be prepared to stop using drugs because that's giving me some peace and some ability to live my life. Some people are at a point where they are thinking about stopping and don't have the confidence or the knowledge to know how to do that. And with opioids, you have a very short window. So if I'm on an opiate that is uh, every four hours you need to take it in order to stave off your withdrawal, I only have four to eight hours before I'm going to start feeling crappy. Hmm. If I'm on a longer acting, I might have a day or so. But more importantly, I'm, I know what I'm going to be feeling like, and it's not pleasant. So I want to avoid that. And if I'm at a preparation stage uh, and thinking about trying to stop, I still need to be able to connect with the services that are going to help me to do that. And they may not have the same uh, speedy agenda as I do. So, you know, I'll try tomorrow, or I'll, I'll go next week, or, uh, and before you know it, you're, you're just caught in this cycle. If people want help, need help, where can they go, Debbie? Lots of places that they can go. So they can call, uh, if, if they're a man, they can call Men's Addiction, which is 905-527-9264. Someone is there to answer 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and uh, don't need to tell us your name. Just happy to chat with you. If you're a woman and you'd like to stop using or even to talk with somebody, 905 545 9100. And again, someone is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week to talk. Again, don't have to give us your name. If you're a parent or a family member, there are organizations like uh, AA and CA and NA that they can contact. Those are all listed in telephone books or found in a Google search. If you're just thinking about it, alcohol, drugs, and gambling is another way to go to get started and think about next steps, do some programming. Uh, So there's lots of ways in. Most importantly, uh, public health is another really good source, especially around naloxone kits. So if, if your intention is to continue to use, please get yourself a naloxone kit and make sure you use with somebody who knows how to use that kit. Debbie Bang has been with us, Manager, Womankind Addiction Service, Men's Addiction Service, Hamilton, St. Joseph's Healthcare. Debbie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're very welcome, Scott. Have a great day. You too. Uh, Liz Russell is with us, producer for this show and the Bill Kelly Show. You actually went and got one of these kits. Yeah. I, what, 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 why did you do this? What was the... Uh, tell us about the story. I wanted to learn a lot more about what's going on with mm-hmm. the opioid crisis. And uh, so I attended the forum that was being held up at Mohawk College. Right. And I'm meeting people. I'm learning things. And I ended up meeting Public Health, their uh, Harm Prevention Council. And they were like, we're going to do naloxone uh, training in about 20 minutes. Showed up, 
and they showed us how to break off the top of the uh, vial that has the naloxone in it, right. how to insert it using the syringe. Now, they're not using the syringe. Uh, they're hoping to move away from it. Yeah. Uh, from what they were saying, that it's going to go to a nasal spray. Right. Um, so they showed us how to use the syringe and the kit that I... How do you I get ha- someone to take a nasal spray if they're, like, out? Tilt the head back. You yeah. open up the spray. you got to be very careful, though. From yeah. what they were saying was that um, it's very easy to misfire and accidentally... Yeah lose lose the shot right yeah yeah um but they showed me how to use it with the syringe and so once that was done they made you fill out a form and i i said i was like i would like to show this to the station and and may i have one then through that form i was allowed to have one but if you what they said was like they would advise that you know if there's you know if it's more for people who have yeah yeah friends, family, right. or are using yeah. themselves or yeah. in that atmosphere. It's not like keeping a bottle of aspirin no, in, it's your, not. in your uh, medicine chest. No, no it's, it's not something... specific. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. um, I wanted to show and just be like, look, this is something that yeah. I, I saw, and I know how to use this if so necessary, but... what was the what was that meeting like? What was that... The forum? The people that were there. What, what, was, the, what was the buzz? What was uh, the feeling? It was very, very serious. Like, it, like people were chatting, and obviously, yeah. like, there's... The, few laughs but it wasn't you know like joking yeah. around the entire thing it was wanting to know okay what do we do yeah um and a lot of people Did you get the asking, feeling users were there friends of users i'm not sure on that one i think yeah. it was just a lot of people who wanted to know yeah um it was a very informative session right. um i was actually sitting next to a lady who was worried in regards to foster care right. uh, and kid uh, the kids with foster care wow um and that was just her concern. That was her specific one. But there was a lot of students there a lot as well that were just there? going. Yeah, I want to say there was at least 100, 200 people there. Really? It, like the the uh, the the amphitheater it was yeah. in was yeah. quite full. Yeah. Oh, um, cool. So it was it was an interesting. So space. Good, I'm glad I went. Yeah. Very good service glad to be offered. Yes, exactly. So you get the feeling people just have no idea how bad this is. I think people have heard how bad it is. Yeah. I think we need to talk about it more. Yeah. And mm. All right, Liz Russell has been with us, a content producer for this show and the Bill Kelly Show, uh, has her own naloxone kit, and of course went to the uh, clinic up at Mohawk College to find out more and what it was all about. And of course, if you need help, uh, Womankind Addiction Services, Men's Addiction Services, St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Poll question of the day, asking you your thoughts on the 25% electricity cut announced yesterday. 78% are saying it ain't going to change my vote. The blog and commentary today, win energy mistake will cost us for decades. Uh, Bill Kelly had uh, the premier and, of course, uh, opposition leader uh, Patrick Brown on the show this morning. And uh, we're going to play you a couple of excerpts uh, from the Bill Kelly show this morning and Premier Wynn's uh, uh interview. This is uh, the answer that Bill received when uh, uh, he was asking Premier Wynne to explain uh, what this was all about, and she sort of comparing it to a mortgage. That's what a mortgage does, right? When we, when we put a mortgage on uh, a property, on a house, um, we basically spread out the cost, and there's a premium attached to that. You do pay, you do pay more, and you pay for a bit longer, but it means that the payments are manageable, and that's what that's what this is about. The payments have not been manageable on the upgrades of these of this electricity system. Uh, people are not able to look after their families, pay their rent, pay their uh, their uh, their bills um, while these electricity bills are so high. And so it had gotten to the point where even with the eight percent that we uh, we took off people's bills as of January, it wasn't enough. We needed to do more, and that's that's why we've put this plan in place. Uh, again, uh, not really explaining why she's not adjusting, correcting, or changing or altering uh, the system that is the Green Energy Act, rather than just extending it out uh, even longer. They're continuing to, to sign these deals. Um, so basically, she's just refinancing uh, the Green Energy Act to, to take it to a to stretch it out from a 20 year to a 30 year mortgage. 
Uh, how is this playing the day after the 25% uh, decrease? That also includes the 8% uh, rebate, which uh, came into effect in the new year. Dr. Cheryl Collier is with us, political science professor, University of Windsor, and on the line with us now. Hello, Cheryl. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Your thoughts on uh, what the Premier had to say about electricity yesterday and today, and uh, how you think the public is going to react to all of this? Well, this is, this is going to be interesting to watch, the public reaction. I, I don't think people are going to look at this favorably initially, but once they start to see some savings uh, from on their hydro bills, and they actually start to feel those savings uh, in their pocketbooks, then the story may change slightly. Uh, but it, when we're thinking about uh, this backlash to hydro, this is one of, of many things, I think, that, are, that the, the government is going to have to be thinking about when it goes to the polls in a year. Uh, it's, it, it right now is, is, uh, is a flashpoint, I think, for anger. And the opposition parties, of course, have, have, uh, have jumped onto this as being as a hot-button issue. But it's, uh, it's not going to be the only story, I think, about uh, some of the, uh, the difficulties they may have uh, when when we do go to the polls in a year's time. Uh, but they do know that this is a tough one, that they had to get ahead of it. The 8% uh, uh, rebate that they, they thought would deal with this was not enough. Uh, 25% sounds like a lot better. Uh, the concept of, of paying uh, later for rebates now is something that has been shown to work in politics in the past. Uh, unfortunately, we don't think too far down the road, and uh, neither do politicians. They tend to uh, to get the short-term gain for the long-term pain. Uh, this, is, uh, this, this works for their advantage, obviously, in the short term. So uh, whether or not it's too little, too late, how it's going to play, we're going to have to wait and see a bit. It, this will uh, we'll really have... Uh, uh, we'll have to see how the opposition parties are able to uh, to keep this one on the forefront. Um, and I know they're going to try really hard to do that. Is she convincing or is the objective here to convince Ontarians that we would have paid for all of this anyway because, you know, we're going green, we paid for upgrades, getting off coal, uh, infrastructure, all of that stuff, even the Green Energy Act. Uh, but really what this is about is paying for lack of due diligence. So, you know, she's sort of she's sort of selling this like, you know, we had to do this. We had to upgrade the the system. We had to upgrade the house. And now we're just stretching the payments off, you know, you know, for for a longer period of time. But is she are people forgetting that no one's arguing about that? What we're arguing about is the fact that she's overpaid for all of this. Uh, even, you know, when you listen to the Auditor General into in the tune of thirty seven billion dollars overpaid for um, for these projects, does this somehow convince the the audience, the the voters that uh, this is more about stretching the payment for this program as opposed to, no, we're really paying for her mistake and that she didn't do her due diligence when this whole thing started. Again, I'm going to look to the opposition parties to make that case. This, this, the issue of the hydro rates is a, is a complex one. And unfortunately, we as Ontarians or just we as, as taxpayers and voters don't do well with complex policy issues. So if she can reframe this in a way that it's, it's simplified. And so her mortgage idea is something that a lot of us can relate to. And maybe there are people that will give her uh, a bit of a pass on it, again, if they feel that the remortgaging that she's doing, if I'm going to use those terms, is, is saving them money and that, that has put this issue to rest. Um, the longer-term issues that you raise are, are really important ones. Uh, they have, they are paying way too much uh, for these long-term, uh, and, and they're locked in for long-term periods of time. So this is something that pre, uh, that any kind of subsequent government is going to be stuck with. Uh, this makes this much more difficult to solve uh, in the uh, in the long term, uh, but in the short term, this this seems to be a solution. Whether or not that message plays well um, is 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 going to be a, a, a combination of factors. Can the opposition parties uh, make the case that that really this is due to the Liberals mismanaging the issue in the first place, uh, and it's a uh, it, it's something that we we have to make them pay for at the polls, or uh, whether or not she's going to be able to sell this as, okay, we realized a mistake in the way that we approached this. We needed to uh, to upgrade. The upgrades made sense, but they were done in a, in a, 
in a poor way, uh, if I could put it that way. Uh, the green energy, of course, is, is part of this. Um, and we know that Ontarians like green energy, but they don't like to pay too much for it. Uh, we're, we're practical here in Ontario. And when we're, when we're thinking about uh, uh, a government we want to reward, we want them to be somewhat progressive, but we don't want to have to feel any kind of, of, uh, of pain for that pr- uh, progress. Is it that so, or is it we don't want to overpay for it? I mean, well, sure. I, I think, you know, here's the other thing, too, is, is, is Kathleen Wynne seems to divide this between the believers and the non-believers, where, where that mm. ship has sailed years ago. Everyone's green now. Because everyone's green, the Green Party doesn't even have a platform to stand on anymore. So at the end of the day, I think all Ontarians want this. What they're concerned about is the lack of due diligence. Sure. And, and even if they don't want it, it's too late. We're, we're kind of there. Uh, so, uh, and I think, I think you're right for the, for the most part. People do want to be green. Uh, but there's been a moratorium paid on, uh, or put on, uh, the expansion of green energy. Uh, you know, the FIT program has, uh, it, it, the costs of those were, were seen to be too much. Uh, the expansion has really slowed down, particularly since when has taken office. So we do have, um, a realization that the cost of this really is the problem going forward, particularly for the political fortunes of this government. Um, and you're right, it is that messaging about whether or not they've mismanaged this whole thing is something the opposition parties really have to drive home. And I'm not sure that the NDP is going to be doing this. We'll have to see if the, the Conservatives can keep that message on uh, and at the forefront. Uh, but a, a whole year till the election is a long time, and other things may come up. We we still have to get to know uh, our, the new leader of the Progressive Conservatives. I would say Ontarians don't really know too much about Patrick Brown yet. Um, he has got a real opportunity here, but we'll, we'll have to see whether or not uh, during an actual campaign he can, he can realize that. We've seen, uh, you know, the Conservatives have a leg up in the past and they've, they've frittered it away during an election. So lots can happen in that year time. Uh, so this is a real test, I think, for the opposition parties. Are they up to the, ta- uh, up to the challenge to keep this uh, at the forefront? Um, I think they can, but whether or not they're able to do it, it's, uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Premier Kathleen Wynne was on with Bill Kelly, or, uh, Bill Kelly earlier on this morning. Here's what she had to say about what was the cause of the price increases. People all over the province are really struggling with electricity bills. We've known this for some time. Um, we have, you know, we've worked to make some changes. And the, the, the root cause of this bill is that we've, uh, we've had to make a lot of investments in the electricity system. Um, there had been neglect in the system. We've made, since we came into office, about $50 billion worth of investment. And that's to build new line, to build more capacity at Niagara Falls, to uh, to clean up the air, shutting down the coal-fired plants and building capacity. So we, we've upgraded the system, but there's a cost associated with that. And what has happened is this generation of uh, consumers has basically been asked to pay for the whole cost of that or a large part of the cost of that. So they're paying for not only the neglect that came for the 30 or 40 years before, but also they're being asked to pay, to pay for an asset that is going to last for another 30 years. So what we've said is, you know what, people right now need relief. That's what we've heard from families. That was what we've heard from individuals. They need substantial relief, and they need it to go to everyone. So is this about upgrades, or is this about overspending and being too aggressive when it comes to green energy, Cheryl? It's about both, um, and that's she's she's uh, being a good politician by omitting a lot of the story there with her with with her answer. Um, it's true that there needed to be upgrades made, particularly to the infrastructure that we had in Ontario, um, it's nuclear power uh, and existing power plants. The decision to get rid of coal was a green energy decision that some provinces haven't made. Uh, coal is the cheapest way to produce energy. If you want to save money, then keep, keep coal. But we know that it's also one that, that contributes the most to uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So that was a choice that was made. Uh, and, and making that choice at the same time that you're um, also putting these investments into upgrading existing power grid uh, um, uh, plants is uh, is 
perhaps maybe not the best choice at the same, at the best time. You also have to remember there were the uh, gas-fired plants that were were planned that were uh, uh, that were seen to be uh, a death knell politically for the Liberals in and around the GTA. Uh, those were canceled at a substantial cost, uh, and that was done for purely political reasons. Um, of course, the premier won't remind you of that because that look, makes her government look bad. Uh, but that also is a cost that we that were, was born on, uh, uh, you know, on top of this. And also the uh, the encouragement of the green energy uh, fit program. Uh, there wasn't a market for that. So there was an establishment of a market and the, the payment for that uh, was fixed. Those costs um, are actually producing more energy than we need right now, and we have locked into paying for those costs. So we're actually paying for more than we use. Uh, this is part of, again, the uh, um, the decision-making that was made uh, from the time that the Liberals took power in 2003 uh, up to, you know, this government right now that uh, that they have to deal with uh, when we're thinking about the, the, the large cost. So she's telling you part of the story, but that's not everything. And, uh, again, we, we have to remember that this is a complex issue, and some of this... We can say is is previous governments not doing their due diligence to uh, to do those fixes in in, uh, in in actual infrastructure, but at the same time, there are also some poor choices made by this government. Dr. Cheryl Collier is with us, political science professor, University of Windsor. Cheryl, why not just fix the system? Why not? You know, they have slowed down uh, signing more of these, but from what we understand, they're still going forward with this. Why not scrap this, rename it, rebrand it, rejig it, and 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 just admit that, you know, well, I guess they, they she did admit that uh, they were doing it too fast, but that's the only mistake she seems to make, or she seems to admit. She, she still believes she's going in the right direction with all of this. You know, I think people are questioning that as well. And how do we have faith in her cap and trade if we don't have faith in the Green Energy Act? That's a good question, and um, whether or not Ontarians have a lot of faith in this government is is a good, just broad question. Uh, you know, and this is, this gets to my other point about there's lots of other things that we have to think about when with this government going to the polls in a year. It's been in power, or it will have been in power for 15 years. That's a long time. Usually voters are really ripe for change at that point in time. Um, so beyond all of this you know, potential good work that she thinks she's doing, or that, that the Liberals, and, and let's be honest, this isn't just, just when we can we, we can tag this with. It's, it's also with the McGuinty-led uh, Liberals uh, that came into power in 03. But one of the things that they promised was the, uh, the you know, getting rid of coal and to promote the Green Energy Act. Um, I think, for the most part, abandoning that would would be like abandoning a brand uh, that they have. But if the brand is is negative, if, if the if he, you know if the brand <laughs> evokes negativity, why sell it? Well, you know, in some cases, she has pulled back from it in more ways than I think we even realize as as uh, as Ontarians. Like there's been a, the moratorium or the uh, the um, the lack of expansion now with the FIT program. Really, they're only doing what they had promised they were going to do. It's still on the books, but they're not really pushing it yeah. as they had when it first came out. So they're almost kind of it, 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 they've done as much of an abandonment as you can without actually abandoning it. And at the same right. time, they, they have those signed contracts with people from pre- that previously, and those are 20-year contracts, so you can't go back on those, uh, you know, as much as they would like, maybe like to in, in hindsight. Hindsight's wonderful, but it just doesn't work in this case. Uh, so they're, they're kind of stuck with that. Um, and I, uh, you know, for the most part, I think they have to shift gears. This is this is really only what they can do, and it really isn't an easy fix. Um, I, I wish I could tell you it is. Uh, it, it, you know, the easiest fix is if we could discover hydroelectric power like Quebec has, uh, and we can kind of just make that shift over. But even still, we, we're we're on the hook for a lot of. Uh, of the uh, uh, the investments in infrastructure we've made for nuclear anyway, um, and for these these long term uh, contracts that have already been signed. So you know, even if we get a new government in uh, after uh, the election in 2018, uh, there's no quick solution for anybody on this one. And this is probably one of the reasons why we haven't seen the uh, opposition parties come out with some great solution. Um, the NDP have kind of gone in the, okay, we're not, we shouldn't privatize, which is not 
at all been proven to be linked at all to any of these costs uh, going up. So we, we can't, because it hasn't, uh, the privatization of hydro has not had, yeah. we haven't had it, uh, we haven't seen the impact on it yet. So um, that's kind of a bit of a ruse. And, and again, playing on people's, not or at least their ignorance of not really knowing what's going on uh, and playing to their base. But the conservatives, are, they're waiting too to kind of figure out what where they're going to come out on this. Let um, me ask you this, Cheryl. Where, because sure. this decision has been made and, and this has gone through, and I'm getting lots of email from people saying, yeah, thanks for this, but you're out anyway. Uh, <laughs> where does this leave the other political parties? What do they do? Because they can't come in and say, hey, this is wrong, spin it around, raise the price again so we can pay off this debt. They have to offer the same sort of discount that the government has just offered, thus punting the ball further down the, the field. Where does this leave the opposition parties? Well, I think that, that exactly what you just said is, is their strategy. So they're going to basically come in, and this is what I would tell them if I was, uh, if I was a strategist and, and they asked my opinion. I would say, well, look, you, you've got to make the best of a bad situation you know uh it may be some people might say you know it's like putting lipstick on a pig but it's it's really you're going to have to probably go with this refinancing plan if, if again we want to go back to the mortgage idea that uh, the premier has put forward uh that is is extending these costs over time i think that you probably will see a little bit more of a willingness to at least do something with green energy uh from the conservatives because i, I in the past they've been more willing uh to uh to actually end the program so i think there will be more of a of a, a posturing, I suppose, of we're going to finally end this program and this will save money. Um, whether or not that actually does save money is a good good question, and we'll have to, to actually see what, what real cost savings there are there. But for the most part, they're going to have to say, look, this is a bad situation, but we're not going to continue it. We're going to manage it better. And uh, here's, you know, here's what we'll do going forward. But but we're really kind of stuck with with these bad decisions from a government that was in power for too long, for 15 years. I find it fascinating that everybody's jumping on, uh, you know, the 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 high the high electricity rate bandwagon. It's it's hurting a lot of people. I mean, it's we're talking more about this than we are health care, than we are uh, our kids' education, than we are jobs, the economy. This is the number one issue, which just seems weird because it's it's self induced. Uh, mm-hmm. I was talking to the NDP energy critic yesterday. Uh, he talked very little about renewable energy and the global adjustment and every all, all the other key points that people have been pointing to for these high rates and blames the whole thing on privatization and just says it's got nothing to do with how much we spent on green energy. It's got nothing to do with these deals. It's, got the, it's, it's all to do with the fact that we've privatized this and said that they should actually go back and buy the shares back, which, of course, you would buy back at a higher price than what you sold them now. Which would cost more, yeah. Which would cost more money. So is privatization, what role did it play in all of this? I don't think it's played any role, to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I think that it's, it's going to give a little bit of, of money to the, uh, the government in the short term. Whether or not all that money is going to now go to the expansion of transit that was the plan of the Liberals in the first place, I'm not sure. Maybe they have to reevaluate where that money will go. But um, the, the impact of privatization, we won't know that for some time. So for the NDP to say that it's all about privatization now, that's a, it's a bit of a, a bait and switch, I think. Mm. And, and, uh, uh, and, and it fits there. Um, their uh, ideological, I guess, position of the state owning uh, the hydro uh, uh, and the, the um, and and being right. in charge of that. Now, that long-term story could actually have some merit uh, mm-hmm. if we do see private companies pushing for uh, higher rates down the road, and we won't really be able to do anything about it because we won't have. Uh, you know the uh, uh, the ownership of, of right. those industries. Cheryl, but, one more um, one more one more question, and we've only got about a minute left here. How sure. did the liberals get into this mess? I mean, I, I've talked to lots of people like yourself, lots of energy experts and such. Uh, the the previous auditor general warned them that this was the direction that they were going in. And, and we knew what all these scheduled increases were. None of this was a secret. How did they make this mistake? How did they let this happen? It's a really good question, and I wish I knew a, you know one quick answer. 
one of the things I think we could look at is maybe they really bought into this concept of uh, being greener, um, the whole idea of a, uh, a different green energy system taking off on the world market. Was the, activism, done... was the activism taking over the common sense and due diligence? Maybe. Uh, you know, when a government takes power, it tries to look different. It has to look different. I think this was one of the ways the Liberals, when they took, they, they were poised to take office in 2003 after we'd had conservative government for quite some time, were trying to uh, distinguish themselves. There's not a lot of difference between the Liberals and the Conservatives normally. Uh, so maybe this was the one thing they, they thought could really put us, uh, uh, you know, over the top. Uh, show that we're uh, we're being because this is this is the way you govern in Ontario is you're you're fiscally responsible supposedly yeah. but you're also progressive mm-hmm. so this this was combining you know an industry a potential industry with with looking like you're being progressive and doing something for the future uh, and I think that narrative really uh, they got caught up in it and and pushed it forward whether or not they thought about the long term consequences at the time. You know, they would have been green coming into office, and, and you know, I don't want to say that, that that, but sometimes mistakes are made, and then when you pushed it so far down the road, you have to keep going with it yeah. until it becomes such a such a, a horrible uh, problem for you going to the polls. And this is where they've, I think they underestimated how, how big a problem it would be. Dr. Cheryl Collier is with us, political science professor, University of Windsor. Cheryl, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you. It was fun. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. It's 1 o'clock on The Scott Thompson Show, so it's time to talk about U.S. politics. Uh, I think we've been doing this every day for the last several months. Uh, And uh, today will be no different. This time it's Attorney General Jeff Sessions. He said he will uh, recuse himself from the federal investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 White House election. Uh, The reason being is that uh, the decision came after the afternoon in the afternoon after The Washington Post revealed he had misled the Senate when he said under oath that he did not have any communication with the Russians during the campaign. When it turns out he had at least two meetings with the Russian ambassador to talk more about all of this. Paul Quirk is with us, Department of Political Science, University of British Columbia, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Paul. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to uh, join us. How do we decode this one, Paul? Uh, What's your take on this? Um, Well, on the recusal, I think uh, the uh, pressure on him to do that was quite quite uh, strong. Uh, The White House, uh, Donald Trump himself, uh, said he didn't need to do that, but um, I think it would have been uh, hard to sustain the position that he that he could be involved in the investigation after the revelations you mentioned. So uh, basically, all he's done is stepped away from the investigation involving uh, the U.S. election. Is that the first step in what could be a resignation? I think that's uh, quite a possibility. Uh, Democrats uh, have been calling for him uh, to resign, and the case for his resigning would be that, uh, quite apart from any any uh, matter involving this Russian connection, uh, as Attorney General, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer of the United States, um, the idea would be that his his credibility uh, and legitimacy is severely comp- uh, compromised by the fact that he has uh, obviously uh, told untruths to the confirmation committee. So that's a case that can be that can be made. Uh, I don't think that with that information uh, alone that the de- that the Republicans would buy it or that he would do it. Uh, with the the situation with uh, Michael Flynn, National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, when he resigned, uh, it was less about the gray area of what he had done and more about the fact that he had lied to the vice president about this or certainly didn't give him correct information. Is that what will bring down Sessions, l- l- less about his involvement and what he was talking about and more about the fact that he, sit- he-, he told the... Uh, uh, the investigators that he had nothing to do with this. Yeah, that's definitely the case. There's, uh, it, it's not uh, by any means clear that he did anything uh, wrong uh, in, in itself. 
it it was uh, entirely at this point that he uh, misled the uh, the committee, and he did that fairly clearly. And uh, why would he do that? Why would like? I mean, this is the sort of thing that you know eventually you would think you're going to get caught on, especially after you saw what Flynn went through. So why would he? Why would he do that? Well, there, that's actually only part of uh, of a of a bigger mystery. That is, at the time uh, when when he was having these meetings with the Russian ambassador, it was already a major uh, controversy that uh, the, the uh, Russians appeared to be attempting to intervene uh, in favor of Donald Trump and against uh, Hillary Clinton in the campaign. So at the time he was meeting with this ambassador, you'd have thought that anybody remotely connected with the campaign would would uh, avoid any conversation with any Russians. Uh, some people are making the point that nothing about this uh, story uh, makes sense unless there's something much bigger that's uh, still hidden. That is some really important reason why the uh, Trump campaign was coordinating with the, with the Russians. But uh, once he has done that, then uh, your question arises, which is why would he lie about having had these uh, meetings? It's clear that they would have, that his revealing those meetings in the confirmation hearing would have led to a lot of serious criticism and possibly opened up more exploration of these uh, of these issues. Right. Uh, he could have gotten past that in in the confirmation hearing. So again, his lying about it in the confirmation hearing uh, kind of, uh, to many people, points to the likelihood or the possibility of there being something bigger that's hidden that he didn't want to come out. I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Paul. What's the big deal? Uh, why can't we improve relations with Russia? Is not a good idea. No, there, that's uh, actually not something that anybody... Well, improving relations, there are, there are policy issues. Uh, certainly as a matter of constitutional legitimacy, there's nothing uh, wrong with doing that, and, and nobody's really arguing that that's the case. Now, on policy, uh, it is actually uh, the case that what it takes to improve Russia, uh, relations with Russia is uh, positions on Russia's intervention into, into the Ukraine, mm-hmm. which are uh, highly uh, contrary to the tradition, you know, to long-standing doctrines of American national security and threatening to Europe and so forth, so that the, uh, the policy positions that are likely to be associated with that kind of improvement are, uh, are hard to sustain or defend uh, uh, in the United States. Uh, but just as a matter of constitutional legitimacy, there's certainly nothing wrong with uh, with uh, conducting relations with the Soviet Union. And it is indeed the uh, lying about it that is the important problem. And that tends to raise possibilities of there being something uh, deeper uh, involved. Uh, it's worth talking about what some of the things, deeper things are that could be involved. One, one is uh, that there could be some sort of collaboration involved between the camp. The Trump campaign and Russians, that is, uh, the campaign uh, uh, indicating its willingness to support Russian policies in exchange for this, mm. for this help. And the other is that there have been allegations that uh, Trump is personally vulnerable to blackmail uh, by the Russians, uh, and there's actually rather uh, significant uh, intelligence information pointing in that, uh, in that direction. So Russia has dirt on Trump. There's, uh, you know, there's a, there has been a, uh, there was a so-called uh, dossier prepared by uh, uh, a British intelligence uh, official and obtained by the uh, CIA, which the CIA told the Trump campaign about, not because uh, it was adopting the position so that those allegations were true, but they felt that the Trump campaign should know about the allegations. But this is apparently a 30-some page dossier with claims about uh, Trump's uh, conduct in, in Russia and possibly other matters uh, that potentially made, would make him liable to uh, blackmail. What, what are the chances of this getting out? What are, the, what are the chances of this ever coming to light? Will this be something that goes to rest after he passes on? Will we ever know this? Uh, you know, my feeling is that once uh, something gets to this level of of uh, of controversy in the United States, 
all of it eventually comes out. That, that's that's kind of a uh, the conventional lore in American politics. That is, if a, a politician is in in the situation that the Trump administration is in right now, you might as well come out with all of the information right away because it's going to come out uh, eventually. I'm inclined to think that that's uh, correct, uh, and one of the, there are two reasons why that's the case. One is that reporters can be going around asking uh, questions of the very same people that investigators have asked questions of and get the, that information independently. And the other is that there's a great tradition of leaking uh, in the United States, uh, and at least some people in the intelligence community and the FBI will not want to help uh, the Trump administration cover up uh, uh, nefarious activities if they actually existed. What about uh, the Russian amb- ambassador's reaction to uh, this whole Jeff Sessions thing? It's almost as if he's defending them. Is, is that, isn't that a little odd? Uh, the, no, the Russian ambassador, I think, uh, doesn't want to uh, magnify any significance of that meeting that he had with, uh, with Sessions. And so... Uh, uh, at this point, they're kind of on the Trump, in the Trump camp uh, in the responses. The, uh, there has been stories saying that um, Putin and, and Russians are starting to get worried about the chaos in the United States over this matter of you know, relations with Russia, and are trying to uh, distance. Them why would they be? Why would they be concerned about that? Isn't that well, what they're it, hoping for? More leverage? Uh, well. You know, if if there is a uh, kind of depends on what they what they have actually done and what they know might uh, come out. You know, if uh, I would say that they would uh, have to consider the uh, a high likelihood that there would be revelations that would lead to a, a much harder uh, line uh, prevailing on 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 Russia in the United States and maybe in other countries as well. Russia has been. Uh, has a sort of a long-term project of uh, destabilizing democracy and discrediting democracy as as part of uh, defending its own authoritarian uh, system. And uh, the the more uh, visible that uh, becomes and the angrier more people become about it uh, in the United States and in Europe, uh, the harder harder line policies Russia would have to face. How long can Trump keep selling this is all just sour grapes, it's people just trying to set him up, it's all this, that, the other? Well, I think it depends on, on, uh, on what, um, if any, further uh, information uh, does come out. I think if, if uh, nothing more in the way of damaging uh, revelations uh, occurs uh, than has occurred already, it will indeed uh, subside because it will appear that uh, the Trump campaign was uh, just talking to another country that it would have to deal with after the after the administration began, and uh, maybe it, and some some members uh, misspoke or uh, or uh, were inaccurate in statements they made about it, but that's not uh, a cause for bringing down the government. I think it would take. Uh, more revelations, like uh, uh, support for these uh, for the, the the claims in the dossier about Trump's vulnerability to blackmail, or some actual evidence of uh, conspiring between the campaign and the Russians. Remember that is agreements in advance about positions, you know, about a tit for tat on uh, exchanging su- support by the Russians for the campaign for policies. So I, I think. From the revelations that have occurred so far, they could subside, uh, but it depends on things we don't know yet. How much of all of this is speculation? How much of all of this is fact? It seems that this camp, that this camp is doing more to draw attention to itself than it is to deflect these issues regarding Russia. I'm sorry, who is doing more? It seems that this administration is doing more to draw attention to its connections with Russia than it is to uh, to move on and distance itself from Russia. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that it could, uh, you know, that it could uh, distance itself uh, from it very effectively now. You know, the big controversy now is what kind of investigation Congress should be having. Uh, and uh the uh so the administration will, is uh, strongly supporting the republican position 
which is that an investigation which is already underway by the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, is, uh, is sufficient. The Senate Intelligence Committee conducts its investigation behind closed doors. Uh, the uh, there uh, there I think is uh, already uh, re- easily enough uh, information that the Democrats have a very strong um, strong position in demanding um, a, a select a special select uh, bipartisan committee to do the investigation. So there will be uh, either a lot of uh, debating about creating this select committee. Or there will be a select committee, in which case there would be uh, a, high, a high visibility investigation. So I don't see uh, an easy way for the uh, administration to put this behind it quickly. I do think it's quite possible that there is nothing terribly nefarious behind any of these contacts, and that uh, if that's the case, then the controversy will eventually subside. Well, on that note, can you know is there nothing that the Trump the Trump camp can do to facilitate this investigation and get it off the books? It doesn't seem like they're doing they're, they're working very hard to to clear themselves here. They they keep no, leaving no. themselves open. Well, that's you know the, again that's uh, the. The con- again, the conventional lore is that politicians, once they once they get in a situation where where there are suspicions, they should just uh, put out all the information that they have and and um, recognize that uh, that they w- won't do any better by trying to hide it because it will eventually come out. And uh, that that recommendation is typically not followed. It's a little difficult for politicians to do that. Uh, they uh, don't have uh, they don't have a very good way of uh, of uh, putting it behind them otherwise, and this does again uh, raise uh, some some flags or some suspicions that there is indeed something deeper uh, that they're hiding, such as collaborating with the Russians over policy or. Trump's vulnerability to blackmail. So, where is this going, Paul? I mean, what does the future hold for Sessions? You know, I I, uh, I think that the uh, Republican uh, the Republicans will uh, continue to uh, stay behind him uh, unless there were to be more revelations about him uh, personally, and uh, the Democrats would would demand his res- resignation, but I don't think it would happen. So I think he. Uh, he could, especially if there are, are, are more revelations about him personally, he could end up being forced to resign. What about the point, though, of him uh, obviously not being completely truthful with Congress? Some saying he just lied under oath. Uh, can you say, "Oops, sorry, mistake. I didn't know what you meant there." Uh, yeah, I, I think I haven't made a, a, a really a thorough study of this, but. So when people when people testify in confirmation hearings, they're asked hard questions for quite a long time about controversial matters. I don't think uh, some degree of untruthfulness is uh, by any means uh, extremely rare. And uh, 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 just recalling, uh, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, found to have made some untruthful statements about her emails uh, mm-hmm. in, in a, under oath. And the FBI director, uh, Comey, said that uh, we don't think this is uh, prosecutable as a crime and we don't think any responsible prosecutor would, would, would prosecute it. I think that this situation is a bit worse because uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was testifying about details about the uh, management of her email system. Uh, which she could easily be un- misinformed about, and it's a quite complicated matter. And it's hard to see how uh, Sessions would not remember these meetings. Uh, however, it's still a couple of points, uh, you know, in days of in days of hearings. Right. And the question is, would a prosecutor go to a jury and ask to put this guy in jail for that? I don't think it's very likely. Paul Quirk has been with us, Department of Political Science, University of British Columbia. Paul, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.